Well, good morning, Oceanside Sanctuary. It's good to be back here with you again on this Sunday morning on YouTube and Facebook. We hope that you are staying safe and healthy wherever you might be. We're anxious about getting back to meeting again face-to-face. Just this week, San Diego County went into the orange tier, just like we were expecting would happen. And so what that means is that in about four weeks, if we are still in the orange tier in San Diego County, then we're going to announce our new opening date for face-to-face in-person services again. We'll be able to gather right here, of course, and see each other uh, for our in-person worship for for the first time in over a year. We're very excited for that. For those of you who are watching from a distance or aren't yet ready to get back to in-person services, no worries. We're going to continue to do these uh, online gatherings on YouTube and Facebook so you can still engage and, and be a part of this fellowship in that way. Today, I want to continue our series on the resurrection. We began this a few weeks ago, uh, just before Easter Sunday. And what we've been doing is taking a look at the resurrection through the lens of John the Apostle. We spent several weeks in the Gospel of John, looking at how John told the story of Easter uh, and the triumphal entry, uh, entry into Jerusalem and the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, all of that. Today, we're going to take a little bit of a different term. We're going to look at John's first epistle or his first letter to the early Christians and see how John continues his sort of mystical approach to the resurrection. But before we do that, before we jump into that passage, I just want to ask that you would all take a moment to pray with me. Let's center our hearts and our minds as we come together and turn to this passage of Scripture. Would you join me? God, we thank you so much for today and for this opportunity for us to gather virtually to encourage each other uh, to turn our attention in worship to you through uh, singing and through the reading of Scripture, through the praying of prayers, and all the different ways that we experience our community together even when we are at a distance. We pray, God, that you would pour out your Spirit in our community, that we would have a sense of being connected to you and connected to each other in meaningful ways, and that you would help us as we move into this post-pandemic period and continue to find new and creative ways to connect with people wherever they might be. We ask that you be with us today as we read these passages Open our hearts and minds to something fresh uh, and new. In your name we pray, amen. Well, today what I want to do again is uh, take you to the book of 1 John, or rather the letter of 1 John. In your Bible, if you turn there, it's all the way towards the back of your Bible. It's right before the end. Uh, 1 John is the first epistle, the first letter written by the Apostle John, who is traditionally understood to be the youngest disciple in the gospel, the youngest follower of Christ. He's the disciple that in the gospels often refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He seemed to have a particularly strong connection with Jesus when Jesus was here in the flesh. And so I think it's interesting for us As we close out this series over the next three weeks here in the month of April, it's interesting for us to see how John, years later, as an older follower of Christ, writes to the early Christians 
and talks to them about the nature of their relationship with this resurrected Christ years after Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. So we're going to read it there, 1 John chapter 1. We're going to pick it up there, and today we're just going to look at chapter 1, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. So if you would, just read with me, uh, starting in verse 1. We declare to you what was heard from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was revealed and we have seen it and testify to it and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And one of the first things that you might notice about this passage is that John is using very tactile, very bodily language. He's saying uh, multiple times that he is testifying to what he has seen and heard and touched with his actual body. And in this way, John is really testifying to the physical existence of the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so there is a kind of tangible, concrete, or uh, in Christianity, sometimes we use the theological term incarnational, which means, of course, God came in the flesh, literally incarnated as uh, the person of Christ that we read about in the Gospels. So there's a lot of that language peppered throughout these first four verses of 1 John chapter 1, and the intention here is that John is painting a picture for his readers. He wants them to know that their connection with John connects them to somebody who was with Christ in the flesh. He literally saw Christ with his eyes, heard Christ with his ears, and touched Christ with his hands, embraced him, and was close to him. So that their connection to John is a direct connection to Christ in the flesh. But there is also, I think, in this passage, a kind of subtext of loss. I can't help but notice that this passage really speaks of a kind of double loss that's hidden between the words. And the first loss is, of course, John's loss of the physical embodied Christ. This is, of course, remember the apostle who is depicted as the apostle who's leaning into Jesus's breast at the Last Supper, sort of reclining into him in a way that is, that is deeply familial. There is a kind of family connection between John and Jesus. And John, of course, refers to himself throughout his gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved, indicating that, that Jesus seemed to have a, a particularly strong affection for John, probably because John was the youngest. He was essentially a teenager following Jesus. So Jesus took special interest in, in caring for him and pulling him close and teaching him and nurturing him in their growing faith. But of course, for all those reasons, I sense a kind of loss in this passage. John no longer has his deep personal friend with him every day in the flesh anymore. And there is, of course, a second loss that is being hinted at in this passage, and that is the loss not just of 
Christ in the flesh to John, but also the loss of that Christ in the flesh to the followers of Jesus that John is writing to. There is an appeal happening in this passage. John is essentially saying, I know that you don't get to see and hear and touch Christ the way that I did, but at least you know that I walked and talked with and spoke to and heard from and embraced Christ in that way. So there is this underlying sense of grief in this passage. Alongside that grief, though, is John's joy. Because part of the joy, I think, that John is communicating is that even though Christ is no longer here in the flesh in that way, not for him, not for the followers that he's writing to, and also, obviously, not for us, but that there is something else available to to John and to the early Christians and to us that produces real joy. And the first thing that comes to my mind when I read these passages is that what John is doing here is remembering. When John says that we come and we testify to you of what we have seen with our eyes and heard with our ears and touched with our hands, he is conjuring up the very real remembrance of Jesus. And of course, remembering might sound like a small thing, but when we gather here in person and we gather around the table and we talk about remembering Christ and remembering what Christ did for us, we are, of course, invoking something very powerful, this idea that our remembrance of Christ somehow, in some kind of spiritual way, connects us to the person of Christ who is no longer physically present with us. You know, last week at the end of my, past, uh, my message, I asked you all to, to respond to a question uh, asking how it is that you tend to experience God, how it is that you tend to experience a sense of the presence of the resurrected Christ in your life. And I said there, there could be all different kinds of ways that you experience God. And one of the fun things last week was that a number of you reached out to me and you know, sent me a text or sent me an email and said, by the way, this is how I experience God. And what was really fun for me in receiving those messages is that I get to hear all of the the millions of different ways that you tend to experience God in your life. Well, one of the ways that I tend to experience God myself is through art. I tend to really see and hear and in a very very uh, symbolic way, sort of touch and feel the, ex- the, the presence of God through all different kinds of expressions of art, including uh, literature and poetry and paintings uh, and film and even television, believe it or not. But one of my favorite ways to encounter a sense that God is present in our culture is through creative expressions. And one of my favorite Uh, sort of remembrances of God through film recently has been through a film called Nomadland. Some of you maybe have seen it, but when I saw Nomadland, it was a really powerful experience of a sense of God being revealed through the story of this one character, Fern, who experiences deep loss in her life. And for those of you who've seen it, you know that Fern is the main character in the story, very powerfully and memorably uh, portrayed by Frances McDormand. And Fern is a character who has spent her entire adult life working for the same company in the same small town, Empire, Nevada, 
with her husband, but in the wake of the Great Recession, she suffers several very traumatic losses. She suffers the loss of her husband who dies. Because of the Great Recession, the gypsum plant where they worked their whole adult lives together closes, so she loses her job. And then eventually, after a period of time, she, because she lost her job and because she lost her husband, she eventually loses her home. And we pick up the story at the beginning of Nomadland with, with Fern essentially uh, leaving behind this beloved small town where she lived with her husband, leaving behind her home, and venturing out to live a kind of nomadic life, a kind of van life on her own because she can no longer afford her home. And then the whole film really becomes this incredibly powerful and poignant portrayal of this growing group of people in the United States who are living this kind of nomadic sort of hashtag van life existence. Only unlike a lot of the people that you see in your Instagram feed who are like literally hashtagging uh, van life and displaying their uh, pictures of the beautiful places that they're going and the life that they're living in their quarter of a million dollar conversion vans, that is not Fern's life. She is not independently wealthy. Fern is really uh, on the cusp of being homeless. The only thing that's keeping her from being technically homeless is that she is living in this beat up old conversion van. She is boiling in the summertime and she is freezing in the wintertime and she is uh, cobbling together a meager existence by working one gig job uh, after another. And so we get to sort of peek behind the curtain at this existence that has become more common in the United States for, for people who are living hand-to-mouth an existence that feels in some ways very insecure, very dangerous, and on the other hand feels quite romantic and, and, and quite idealized as well. This is one of the things that I think is really powerful about the film is that it reveals sort of the double nature of this kind of existence. And one of the scenes towards the end of the film, uh, Fern is talking to another character in the film, and she's talking about why she ventured out on her own, and she's recounting the loss of her husband, the loss of her job. And she says that for a long time after losing her husband, she lived in her house, but then she says uh, the problem was that, quote, what's remembered lives. What's remembered lives. And it really struck me when, when the character Fern in the film utters that quote, it really struck me that for her, what was a problem, right, the remembrance of her husband, the remembrance of a life that she no longer had, the remembrance of a job that she had lost, all of that became a kind of ghost that was haunting her life. And so she had to escape it. She had to get away from it. And so she retreats into this van life, the only life that she can sustain. For John, however, what we read here is that the remembrance of his experience with the tangible embodied Christ that we read about in the Gospels doesn't become a ghost that haunts his life and drives him into, into despair. Instead, it becomes a source of hopefulness for something else. And in this way, this film, I think, is a really powerful indictment of the culture that we live in. Because Nomadland really reveals the American romanticizing of rugged individualism. And we all suffer from this. We all tend to believe, as Americans, that the virtuous life is the self-sufficient, 
independent life. That the good life that we want to live is often that which is lived in isolation without needing anybody else in our lives. And we might have friends, we might have family, but ultimately the best way to live is the way that doesn't need anybody else. We see this in all kinds of other sorts of films and artistic depictions in our culture. This is essentially a modern Western film. It draws upon old American myths like cowboys on the prairie or or uh, uh, people on the frontier in, in covered wagons moving westward trying to fulfill their hopes and dreams. This is kind of a part of the American mythology and the American folklore that what it really means to be an, an American is to be this sort of independent, self-sufficient, rugged individual. But Nomadland also, I think, as a film, really powerfully pulls back the curtain on the dark side of that as well. And the dark side is that those lives that are lived in isolation, those lives that tend to escape into the frontier, those lives that sometimes are forced into a kind of self-sufficiency that becomes oppressive and dangerous, those lives often are denying or masking a very real trauma that drove them to that place in the first place. And that trauma could be any number of things. Like Fern in the movie, that trauma could be the trauma of the death of a loved one or the economic ruin that comes about as the result of a recession or a depression and the loss of a job. Or that trauma could come out of an abusive relationship that dislodges you from your, your family and, and sends you out on your own trying to patch together an existence without the support of a community there to help provide for you and encourage you and get you back on a place of, uh, of sustainability. And so Nomadland, I think, as a film is powerful for me because it unmasks those denials of trauma that so often lie at the heart of our romanticizing these sort of notions of individualism and self-sufficiency. I think American Christianity, when it is its worst self, really becomes just another version of Nomadland. American Christianity, in its worst version, in its worst self, becomes a kind of hashtag van life religion, where we basically live with Jesus, just the two of us, on our own, entirely self-sufficient. In fact, I think you could say that in its worst expressions, American Christianity turns Jesus into a kind of object or commodity, just like that conversion van. And that Jesus provides us with everything that we need. And all we really need is Jesus to be there for us. And as long as Jesus is there for us, we don't need anybody else. There is, I think, a lie at the heart of that version of Christianity. That to be saved... To live an eternal kind of life means that we are delivered into the ultimate version, the eternal version of an American rugged individual. But I don't think that that is healthy Christianity at all, and I don't think that is what John is depicting here. In fact, John does something quite different. John pivots in verse 1 to a different kind of reality altogether. So if you would turn back with me 
At the end of verse 1, John says what we've looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And then in verse 2, we pick it up from there. And here is where John pivots and says this. This life was revealed, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and we declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And so for John, what he writes here in 1 John is that this sort of individual, even deeply personal, mystical encounter that we have with Christ does not lead us into a kind of self-sufficient isolation, quite the contrary. John takes that experience with the personal Christ, the resurrected Jesus, and he witnesses to it. He testifies to it. He shares that experience with others. And in sharing that experience with others, John begins to create a community of resurrection. He witnesses to the Christ that he experienced, and by bringing others into that experience, they all begin to have that experience together as a community. Now, the, the fancy New Testament Greek word for this is koinonia. Koinonia in the Christian tradition simply means that deep experience of communion that we have when we are in relationship with each other and together in relationship with God. And that is what we are trying to be about here at the Oceanside Sanctuary. We are trying to lean into an experience of the resurrected Christ that is not just a kind of one-on-one -on -one version of Jesus as our boyfriend, where Jesus takes care of all of our needs individually, and it's nice to have relationships and friendships with each other, but ultimately all we need is Jesus. No, our desire here is that we would have the opportunity to have deep personal connections with God, but that then we would enter into relationships with each other so that we can experience that koinonia with God as a church. I think that what John is trying to say here is that that is a foretaste of eternal life, that we are experiencing a kind of eternity even now as we take that experience of the resurrected Christ that we might encounter every single day in a million different ways in our lives and share it together. And in the sharing of that together, our joy literally becomes completed because we are able to experience that sort of communion, that community, that sense of deep koinonia, not just with each other, but experience it together with God himself. And this is, I think, what John is getting at in 1 John. What we're going to do over the next couple of weeks is unpack a few other examples of how John is leading us into a kind of communal and mystical relationship with God together. But today I want to leave you with another question. I think in my experience, it turns out that, that most of us, by personality, by inclination, however it is that you are wired, most of us have a tendency 
to experience God more often one way or the other. Either you're the kind of person who really tends to experience God when you are in solitude, when you're alone, when you're in prayer, or maybe reading scripture, or maybe worshiping on your own in some way, or practicing some sort of spiritual practice or discipline on your own. But you're the kind of person who tends to really experience God alone, one-on-one. And some of you are people who are the opposite. You tend to experience God in social settings. You tend to have that sense that you have encountered the divine presence of God in some way when you're in groups. And maybe that is in church, or maybe that is in a group of friends, or within your family, or some sort of project, or outreach, or service that you're doing in the community, whatever it might be, when you experience God, it usually is with other people. Either way is fine. There's nothing wrong with being a kind of person who is inclined one way or the other. But my question to you today is, however you are inclined, how can you lean into the opposite experience? So if you tend to experience God in a kind of isolated, solitary, one-on-one way, How can you begin to lean into more of a sense of experiencing God in community? And the opposite as well. If you're the kind of person who tends to experience God in community, how can you lean into experiencing God in a more solitary, one-on-one, personal way? I want to leave you with that. Until next week when we talk a little bit more about what John has to say about discerning how the presence of God is active in our lives. In the meantime, I want to ask that you just pray with me as we close out our worship today. God, we thank you so much again for today, for this opportunity for us to uh, read your word and to be challenged and inspired by it. We ask that you would make us into the kind of people who are able to experience your presence, who are able to step into relationships with you, not just in isolation, not in a way that tries to escape our pain or our trauma, but in a way that welcomes others to experience the presence of God in community together. We pray that you would make us into the kind of church that experiences God in community and welcomes others into that experience as well. Pour out your grace and your mercy on us as we continue to seek to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Now, I have a few couple quick announcements for you before we head off. So, as always, first, if you are new, if you're just checking us out for the first time, or we don't know you very well yet, we would love to get to know you better. So you can head on over to oceansidesanctuary.org slash contact. Leave us a little message, we'll reach out to you, or you can just comment right here on wherever you're watching, say, hey, I'm new, and we'll you know, be sure to follow up with you as well. Next is our six-week online Zoom class, How Not to Read the Bible. That is starting this Wednesday. This Wednesday, we changed the day to be a week later. So it didn't start last week. So if you weren't able to make it last week and you're like, ah, man, darn, I missed it. You didn't. It's starting this Wednesday, April 14th and it goes through May 19th every Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. And this class is designed by Jason, our lead pastor, Jason Coker, and it's really gonna teach you how not to read the Bible, right? How to use the Bible in a way that's 
loving and progressive and inclusive, not in a way that, you know, excludes people, is violent, etc. You know, all the ways that the Bible sometimes gets used. So we hope to see you there this Wednesday for the start of that class. Next up, we have our Justice Works team meeting orientation that's coming up on April 18th, which is a Sunday. So April 18th, Sunday, right after church at 10 a.m. And basically, um, this is a chance for you to get to see what the Justice Works team is all about. This is a chance to uh, join in on the amazing work that's being done through that team, like the work with the um, police chief hiring in Oceanside. Uh, we work with San Diego Organizing Project. We want to work on climate change, continue the policing efforts. I mean, there's so much to do. And so if you're a really justice-oriented person, you want to put your faith in action, and come join us April 18th at 10 a.m. for a little orientation on what that might look like. Next, we have our call and response starting again on April 22nd, Thursday, April 22nd at 6.30 p.m. And our call and response is our version of scripture study, in a sense. Um, it's not your normal, you know, Bible study. We're really encouraging people to ask questions and think about the Bible differently. And it's really a conversation and a way to get to know people and connect um, over our scripture, over the Bible. And lastly, as always, we are a nonprofit 501c3, and we really rely on the donations from people just like you. So if you like what we're doing here, if you feel uh, called, if you feel able to give, then we really appreciate that. So you can head on over to oceansidesanctuary.org give, and you can easily make a one-time donation or a monthly donation, whatever feels comfortable to you. And we really appreciate all the support you're able to give. Well, thanks so much, everyone. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this service. We miss you. We look forward to being with you in person soon. But until then, have an amazing week, a blessed week, and we'll see you next Sunday right here on Facebook and YouTube. Peace. Thank you.